your friends of Jesus Christ. In the uh, mid-80s, a movie called Witness was released. The main character in the film was a man named John Book. Book was played by Harrison Ford, and he was a hard-nosed but good police officer from the city of Philadelphia. Due to corruption in the force, Book was forced to go undercover into Amish country in Pennsylvania. He went there to protect himself, but he also went there to protect a small Amish boy who was a witness to a murder that was carried out by a crooked cop. It took a little while, but eventually John Book settled into life in the Amish community. They gave him a hat, they gave him some clothes, and they really actually liked his hard work work ethic, so eventually they accepted him as one of their own. Life was simple for the Amish in Pennsylvania, but it wasn't always easy. They were often made fun of for the way they dressed and for their insistence on traveling by horse and buggy. Furthermore, everyone in the town knew that the Amish were committed to nonviolence. So occasionally, people would test the limits of their pacifism. One day, a group of young troublemakers approached a group of young Amish men on on the sidewalk. They were taking a break. It was a hot day. They were eating ice cream together. The young men started to insult the Amish. They they jeered at at them. They they pulled off their hats. and, And then one of the young men reached out, grabbed an ice cream cone, and started to smear it in the face of one of the Amish men. The youths laughed at this, of course, and the Amish men went quiet. This was familiar territory for them. They were well-practiced in the discipline of turning the other cheek. After smearing the ice cream in one man's face, the youth tried to do the same with John. The trouble was that John wasn't actually Amish. He was only pretending to be Amish. And John wasn't schooled in the discipline of turning the other cheek. Enraged by what was happening, John broke character and he beat the living tar out of this young, unsuspecting punk. Sort of a funny moment in the movie. Actually, it turned serious later. But I wonder, who chose the better path in that moment? What was the right thing to do? What would you have done in a situation like that? Getting even, enacting payback, this seems to be our natural impulse. You hit me, I hit you. You send me a nasty email, I send a nasty email right back. This tit-for-tat response pattern is, is formed early. I mean, as soon as my kids were able to crawl, they were able to hit, right? And they did so. Anytime someone stole a toy from them, it's like, whack. It's like tit for tat. You steal that, I hit you. Making the other pay, getting even, that is so natural, so built into our DNA. It's nonviolence and kindness in the face of evil that needs to be learned. This morning, I'd like us to sit at the feet of our master and let, uh, let him teach us the better way. You have heard that it was said, says Jesus, eye for eye and, and tooth for tooth. This ancient principle was, was written into Israel's justice system, 
Perhaps its clearest formulation is found in Deuteronomy chapter 19. Speaking to judges, those, with, those charged with carrying out justice, Moses says this to them. You must purge the evil from among you. Show no pity. Life for life. Eye for eye. Tooth for tooth. Hand for hand. Foot for foot. The idea that, that grounds this principle is a good one. The idea is that the punishment should fit the crime. If you steal your neighbor's cow, you owe your neighbor a new cow. If you rear-end your neighbor's car, you owe them a new bumper or perhaps a new car. This law taught basic justice. It taught people that actions have consequences, and it helped to restrain evil in the land. Additionally, this principle mitigated against people enacting revenge in an unruly way. I mean, the, the experience of injustice, it produces such a primal response in us, and such anger comes out of us. It's, it's hard in the moment to react in a measured way. I mean, when someone slashes my wrists in a hockey game, my first reaction is not simply to tap them back. I mean, I want to take them down. I want two eyes for the eye that I lost. And that's how it goes with revenge. We want more. We want more than getting even. We want to hurt the other. But this principle, this eye for eye, tooth for tooth principle, restricted that urge to get more than even. And it's important to know that Jesus isn't throwing away this principle on the Sermon on the Mount. I mean, it's, it's, it's still important. It's still good. And for those charged with carrying out justice, it's still important to keep this principle in mind. For instance, Jesus would never tell judges to implement a turn-the-other-cheek policy. Imagine that. Imagine if a corrupt investment manager took off with someone's life savings and then the judge said to the victim, that person took your money, now give them your house as well. That kind of application would encourage evil in society. And Paul says in Romans 13 that the, the sword of justice is, is given to the ruling authorities by God himself. And it's their primary responsibility to make sure that justice is carried out in the land. I don't think that Jesus would disagree with this. His main audience is not civil servants carrying out the duties of their office. His main audience is you and me, disciples of Christ, trying to live for him in the world. And as disciples, our, we're supposed to abide by a deeper principle, says Jesus. We should be less occupied with retributive justice and more focused on creative witness to the radical grace of God shown in Christ. You have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth, says Jesus. But I tell you, do not resist an evil person. If anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to them the other also. And if anyone wants to sue you and take your shirt, hand over your coat as well. If anyone forces you to go one mile, go with them too. Give to the one who asks you, and do not turn away from the one who wants to borrow from you. Do not resist an evil person. Wow. Do not resist an evil person. 
The Greek word translated resist is a little bit hard to translate. It means stand against or oppose. Do not stand against or oppose an evil person. The idea here is that when you experience wrongdoing or evil of some kind, don't, don't dig in your heels. Don't put up your fists. Instead of standing against the person, stand against your urge to get even. Instead of overcome or, or repaying evil with evil, overcome evil with good. It's not that Jesus wants us to dismiss evil or wrongdoing or, or just shrug it off as unimportant. To say that's not such a big, big deal is, is not the right way of going about this. Smearing ice cream in someone's face is totally wrong. Jesus doesn't question that. But neither are we to respond in kind. We shouldn't grab the ice cream back and stick it back in their face. Don't overcome, don't repay evil with evil, but overcome evil with good. Jesus gives us a few examples to fuel our imagination. If someone insults you and slaps you on the cheek, turn your face and let them slap the other side. If someone sues you and takes your outer garment, well, give them your undergarment as well. And if someone forces you to walk one mile, as was potentially the custom in that Roman-dominated time period, the guards could just ask whatever they wanted of Israelites, and they were forced to go along with it. If someone forces you to walk one mile, go with them too. Go the extra distance. Give to those who ask of you. Don't wonder if they're going to use it for ill. Don't care if they're greedy. Give to those who ask of you. Don't turn away from the one who wants to borrow from you. A few things to notice about these examples. Firstly, notice that Jesus invites us both to avoid the fight response and also to avoid the flight response. Fighters tend to be aggressive. They're like John Book, you know. You wrong me and I'm, I'm coming back hard. They slap back, but Jesus says no to, to retaliation. But Jesus also says no to people who fight in passive-aggressive ways, too. Flighters, people who check out, people who run away and try to ignore an evil person. Jesus invites us instead to a response that is, that is neither vengeful nor cowardly. He calls us to creative engagement creative, nonviolent engagement. And the creative aspect is important here. I mean, there's something totally unexpected when, if you're, sla- you know, if you're the slapper, say, you slap someone and they just sort of pause and hold out the other cheek. I mean, that, that has an impact, right? It's like, what's going on? This, is, this isn't what I expected. And if someone sues you and they take the shirt off your back and all of a sudden you take off your underwear as well and give it to them, I mean, that's, gonna, that's a surprise, right? People are not expecting that. So there's a creative aspect to this. And that's important too. Instead of choosing a cold response to match a cold crime, an eye for an eye, Jesus calls us to throw a little surprise party to show up in a creative way that causes the evil person to take pause. 
These four examples, I, I, I don't think they should be overly interpreted and overly applied to all situations, but the, but the principle behind them should. These examples help us to think. They help us to wonder about our own situations, our own experiences in the world, and they are there to get us to ask this question, what might it look like for me to live this way in my life? How could I respond in creative, nonviolent ways? A good modern example of Jesus' teaching is found in a children's book called The Hug. The author of this book is Geraldine Wolters, a great author. I, maybe I can get her to sign my copy after the service. Here it is. The Hug is the true story about a kindergarten classroom that decided to fight bad behavior with hugs. Tim was always acting out in class. He would hit other students and kick other students. He had a hard time handling himself when, when things didn't go his way. Mrs. Klein, the teacher, really tried hard to, to manage Tim's behavior. She'd, she'd talk with him. She'd give, the, give him time out. She'd take away his art time. But, but still, Tim caused trouble in the classroom. Not knowing what else to do, Mrs. Klein invited her class to think creatively about the situation. What should we do? She asked them. Maybe you could give Tim a time out, one of the students suggested. Maybe you should send him to the principal's office, another said. The trouble was that Mrs. Klein had already tried all these uh, things. Then a boy named Matthew spoke up. What if we gave him a hug, he said. You mean, said Mrs. Klein, that every time Tim hits or kicks, we should stop and give him a hug? Yeah, said Matthew. And all the kindergartners agreed that this was worth a try. A few hours later, Tim hit one of his classmates. All right, everybody, said Mrs. Klein, you know what to do. And one by one, they all went over to Tim and gave him a hug. In no time at all, Tim's behavior had radically changed. He stopped hitting and kicking. And I think that's a creative and courageous nonviolent solution to kind of a tricky problem in the classroom. Now, this is a great example, but of course, life tends to get a bit more complicated the further we get away from kindergarten. I'm part of a, a dad's group that meets every Saturday mornings. I, I really enjoy this time. I get to uh, hang out with my kids and other kids and other dads. It's, it's awesome. This week, I talked to a new dad uh, who just moved to Canada from the Bahamas, and his name is JJ. He told me I could share this story with you. JJ asked what I did, and I told him I was a pastor. Oh, what's that like, he asked. So I told him what I do, and I said a bunch of the things that I, I usually do, and one of the things I said is, you know, I'm, I am with other people trying to grow into Christ-likeness. I want me and others to become like Jesus. That's, that's my hope. And he said, wow, that's a good goal. But I have a real hard time with that turn-the-other-cheek business. And then he proceeded to tell me how he had, been recently, he had recently been betrayed by one of his closest friends. It happened about a year ago. This friend promised something to him. I think it was some sort of work-related deal. 
that this was going to work out and it was going to be good. But then that friend pulled out and totally betrayed him in the process. And I could see just the anger inside of him as he shared this part of his story. JJ, I said, you won't believe this, but I'm preaching on that passage tomorrow. (laughs) And I was only halfway done my sermon at the time, so I started to probe and ask questions and try to hear more about it. And one of the things I said is, yeah, it's hard. It's not easy. Could there be a more difficult teaching of Jesus in the scriptures? Could there be anything more counterintuitive and contrary to our nature? If we are to make any progress in putting this teaching into into action, we need more than good creative ideas. We need a power at work in us that we cannot conjure up on our own. We need Christ and all his benefits. We need the Holy Spirit. The only way, the only way that you can show creative love to an enemy is if you come to grips with the creative love that God has shown to you in Christ. You have to see yourself originally as an enemy of God, someone God was could have just wiped off the face of the earth, but he didn't choose that path. He chose the path of the hug, the embrace. And what's more, it takes takes a great security of identity in order to throw a surprise party for your enemy. You need to know deeply that your life is hid with Christ in God and that nothing can separate you from his love. It's only from that deep-rooted position in Christ that you'll have the courage and the capacity to confront evil with good. And you also need to know that, that Jesus not only died for you and that he rose for you, but that he ascended into heaven for you and there sits at the right hand of God and will one day return to judge the living and the dead. Injustice is too real an experience for us to just shake off. And and one of the ways we can disrupt the anger is by reminding ourselves that it's God's job to avenge and that he can be counted on to act justly. We need to know that there's one who sees the injustice. But we also need the Spirit's power at work in our lives. Prior to Pentecost, Jesus' disciples were in a way, constantly reaching for the sword. When Jesus wasn't welcomed in a Samaritan village, James and John, they, they looked at Jesus and said, should we, should we call down fire from heaven, Jesus, and, and wipe these people out? I mean, they, they had heard the Sermon on the Mount. And they're like, let's, let's, let's obliterate this village with, with God's fire. Jesus rebuked them. Then when Jesus was being arrested, Peter reached for the sword and he, and he cut off the the guard's ear, and Jesus said, put away that sword, Peter. These disciples had heard the Sermon on the Mount, but they weren't quite capable of putting that teaching into action. But after Pentecost, things changed. And one of the hallmarks of the early church, what they were known for in their witness, is that they were known for their love of enemies and their refusal to act violently 
in response to the violence that was shown towards them. They forgave their enemies. They took care of their enemies when their enemies were sick. They even took in their, the unwanted children of their enemies. What happened? What changed? Simple answer is that they had received the Holy Spirit the same spirit that was with Jesus during his ministry on earth that allowed him to confront evil with good was now with them. And that nonviolent movement of the spirit is still at work in the world today through us. And one of the greatest displays of creative nonviolent action in the 20th century was the civil rights movement of the 1950s Pastor Martin Luther King Jr. became the spokesperson of that movement, and he insisted every step of the way that the movement not devolve into a descending spiral of violence. Instead, he, uh, uh, he advocated a nonviolent approach to witness. And one day while in prison, Martin Luther King Jr. wrote these words. These are just simply amazing. While abhorring segregation, we shall love the segregationist. This is the only way to create the beloved community. To our most bitter opponents, we say, we shall match your capacity to inflict suffering by our capacity to endure suffering. We shall meet your physical force with soul force. Do to us what you will, and we shall continue to love you. Throw us in jail, and we shall still love you. Bomb our homes, threaten our children, and we shall still love you. Send your hooded perpetrators of violence into our community, and we shall still love you. But be ye assured that we will wear you down by our capacity to suffer. And one day we shall win freedom, but not only for ourselves. We shall so appeal to your heart and conscience that we shall win you in the process. And our victory will be a double victory. That's the aim of Christ's teaching. The double victory. The goal is not to heap burning coals onto your opponent's head, although that might be a product, byproduct sometimes, the creative love. The goal is to win their heart and to prick their conscience by creative displays of love that witness to the radical grace that God has shown us in Christ. That is, after all, how Christ wooed us by his creative display of love. May Jesus empower us all for this radical ministry. Amen.